look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle Matters. It's More Than Money. I'm Faisal Carmelli. My co-host filling in for Dave Popowich is Andrew Masson. Andrew. Hi, Faisal. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. It's nice to have a better looking partner today. Uh, it's a nice change of effect. <laughs> you know, I had a hiatus for a bit, but I'm back. You're at least back. For now. I, I love it. Uh, Dave is in... Uh, He's doing his staycation in Alberta. He's trying out Jasper. Cool. Uh, last show, we had um, Alberta Tourism on board, mm -hmm. and they were talking to us about the different things. And so I got so excited. He left. He went to Jasper. I got excited. And after the show, I'm taking off to Jasper. And going oh, to go, nice. go try it out and see how it is. It's been a while since I've been to Jasper, probably over 20 years. Well, and there's opportunities across Alberta right now. In particular, Banff is a great place, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, hearing, you know, different hotels anywhere from, you know, up to 35% off. Hey, it's an opportunity for Albertans to get out, support the local economy, and hey, have a good time. Yeah, the deal that I got in Jasper was uh, buy one night, get the second night free for being Albertan. So that was... Nice. You know, me and coupons, I love them, so... <laughs> Well, speaking, I'm a, I'm a Groupon guy too. So uh, speaking good. of taking money, mm -hmm. you know, discounts. There, the 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 NDP came out. A federal NDP government came out or group came out and said, especially the finance critic Peter Julian came out and said, you know what, we're going to look and further investigate this wealth tax. This is the wealth tax, and for those of you who don't know, listening to this show, we've talked about in the past, and it's coming back up in the news. It is uh, the budget office, the parliamentary budget office, estimates revenue from a 1% tax on families' net worth over $20 million will be about $5.6 billion in annual revenue. For a better understanding, there's only 14,000 families in this country that have over $20 million in net worth. Yeah, but, you know, what is a wealth tax and what's the real benefit of a wealth tax, Faisal? Because there's, there's pluses and minuses, right? We can, you know, we can play the Robin Hood card by being um, polite and saying we're going to take from the rich and give to the poor. Because really, in essence, they're going to transfer one to the other. Yep. But what happens to that capital? And that's what I always ask is, yeah, you've got the 14,000 richest families in Canada that can pay this wealth tax. But what happens if they get forced into a wealth tax situation. Capital has ways to find to, to grow wings and fly. And that was Elizabeth Warren's point in the U.S. when she was running for a candidate uh, for presidency. She came out with the, the concept of a wealth tax in the United States. And she said, you know, we can do this. The problem is that these rich individuals are going to hire lawyers, accountants, other professionals to move their money around to make it out that they don't have this type of wealth. And according to the Parliamentary Budget Office, they came out and said this policy would cost $113 million for $5.6 billion worth of revenue. So what I find interesting about this situation is that, first of all, they picked a number, $20 million. Why do they pick that number? My guess, and this is only my guess, I do not know this for a fact, so I just want to put out my opinion on this, is that they looked at the least amount of families with the highest amount of wealth, let's go after them. Or what's that top 1% number? Or, or what's that? Or what's 0.5, or whatever. Whatever that number is, yeah. So, so 
here's where I have a problem with the overall concept of a wealth tax. You have to pick a number. Does the number start getting lower and lower? Does it go to 10 million, mm-hmm. 5 million? How about 1 million? How about everybody who owns a home in Toronto and Vancouver, because they're over a million bucks on average, they pay a wealth tax. It's only 1%. Yeah. So why not just tax everybody that has a million dollars? At what point does it go down? That's one question. The other question is, what are you trying to do or incent? Well, and I think the incentive question is really interesting, Faisal, because my concern is when you incent taxes or you incent some sort of structure to try and get some type of revenue, what are those people going to do? A, I suggested just moments ago that capital could fly, grow wings and fly away. Um, perhaps those people might actually determine that they don't want to live in Canada. Perhaps those people determined that um, maybe they're not going to employ as many people as they do, or they may change their habits in order to to uh, to move their capital appropriately. So the benefit of of the wealthy is that they do employ a lot of people because generally speaking, they have some type of business or business enterprise yeah. that's going to drive things. Yeah, and and that and that comes down to now. What kind of culture do we want to have in this country? And I'm, I'm not saying taxing the ultra high net worth individuals in this country, the top 14,000 or 1% tax for them is wrong. I'm not going to say it's wrong. I just don't understand the incentive. At some point, small entrepreneur wants to grow their business and become, and, and become successful. And because they have become successful, they're getting penalized with an extra tax. And I know it's only 1%. And we can say that for everybody. Everybody can have a 1% increase in tax. It's only 1%. And that would cover up. And we were kind of laughing before the show, and we were looking at the $343 billion deficit. 342.5. Let's call it 343 for simple numbers. Yeah. So we've got that deficit that the the federal government just announced. Mm -hmm. You did some quick math. Based on a $35 million population in Canada. Yeah. That says that you know and I'm rounding up. Yeah. Um but it's about $10,000 per person on just this year's deficit. So so because this is a national deficit, let's take it to the debt viewpoint and say it's 1 trillion dollars of debt. Well, 1.2. Okay. Let's use an easy 1 trillion. Yep. Okay. And the same 35 million people Roughly, rough numbers here, $30,000 per Canadian citizen living in this country has a bill to pay. Could you imagine, Andrew, if the federal government gave an invoice to every Canadian, say you owe $30,000 to Canada, and you have maximum 10 years to pay it, let's figure out a payment plan. Do you know how quickly everybody would be fiscally responsible and, and actually criticize the government for all that they're spending their money on? Well, it would change the entire way governments act and operate on a fiscally responsible basis because things would be looked at at a way different way than it is currently. And I look at it this way. We only have a couple minutes before we have to go mm-hmm. to break. But, you know, you, myself, Dave Popovich, and a bunch of our friends get together. We go out for dinner. Let's say there's 10 of us, and we all go out for dinner. And the bill comes out to $1,000, okay? How do we normally pay that bill? We kind of say there's 10 of us, yep. 1000 bucks. Everybody put $100 plus tip, call it a day. That's right. We don't go down and say, you ate more than I did, you drank more than I did. 
We just say let's divvy it up amongst all of us. We had a good time. Yep. Let's split up equally. I have yet to be at a party where someone says, Faisal, you make more money than I do, so you should pay more of this bill than I should. But we all had the same enjoyment out of it. Why does it change at the dinner table, but doesn't change in our entire tax-based system for this country? And I'm saying this because the more you start saying, let's just tax the 1%, then it's not a person that's not part of that 1%. You and me are not involved in that 1%. We're not the top yep. 14,000 richest people in this world, in this country, sorry. Mm -hmm. So we don't care. Let them yep. pay it. Is that the right culture we want to have in this country? I don't that's what I'm really worried about. I, at the end of the day, $5.6 billion, they're going to find it somewhere. Well, they're like going to tax said, it somewhere. And I, like I said to you before we got on, was was $5.6 It's really a drop in the bucket when we look at the size of the deficit we have this year, let alone moving forward. But there's got to be some better answers than consistently going after the, the, the top earners within Canada. There's got to be another solution that would make a little bit more sense. And I think there's certain groups out there, certain think tanks, that are coming up with different ideas. I just hope that our government and the critics within each party literally take a hard look at those, those ideas. Let's come to the table and get a solution. I think that's, that's the biggest one. And that's where it comes out to the bigger piece. So today on our show, Andrew, we are going to find out what's happening in the global financial world. We've got our reoccurring guest coming in. He is a chief investment officer, uh, and, and he has been talking about some of the biggest concerns we have to worry about. We talk to him on a regular basis outside yep. of the show. He's got some great pieces. Is the economy dictating the stock market or is the stock market getting way ahead of itself? We're going to find out after the break. But before you go, don't forget, we have got our seminar, our webinar, sorry. Mm -hmm. That's going to talk about how do you bulletproof your retirement? How do you make sure with all the stuff that's going on, you still have income for the rest of your life? We're going to discuss that on Tuesday, July 21st, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register. So go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Okay, join us after the break. We're going to be talking about is the economy not fast enough for the stock market or will the stock market catch up to the economy, which means a crash. We'll find out after the break. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back to More Than Money on 770 CHQR. Andrew Masson filling in for... Dave Popovich, I'm Faisal Carmelli, and you know every quarter, Andrew, we get to bring in some of the most smartest and brightest minds on this show when it comes to markets, economy, portfolios, and so forth. We're we're privileged to have these individuals on our show, and I and thought, I thought you were referring to me. I, well, I was. I was getting to the next guest too, of course. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Well, he's definitely smarter than I am. Well, he, he's definitely smarter than all of us here on this okay. show right now. And he's, uh, he's been a reoccurring guest on this show, giving us some great information, insight. And let's talk about, you know, what's happening in the markets and where things are going to go. We've got Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. Philip, welcome back. All right. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be speaking to you yet again today. And so the last time you were on the show, we were just getting started with this whole pandemic we were talking about what the issues could be. Let's kind of give everybody a refresher of our conversation and what your thoughts were leading up to, let's call it the end of, of June, where we had the, uh, the mid-break or the mid-year. And let's, let's talk about what your thoughts were, what, what were you expecting, what changed, and we can take it from there. Certainly. If we go all the way back to February and March, as we started the downturn in the market, the bear market, 
Um, we felt that you know, when we hit the lows of March 23rd, that we could have seen a little bit more downside. We felt that we were more than halfway through, maybe two-thirds of the way through, and we really looked at it in the context of historical bear markets, recessionary bear markets. And, and on average, in a recession, you tend to see a bear market in the S&P 500, our U.S. equity benchmark, of approximately 40%. And from February 19th to March 23rd, we were down 35 So, you know, we just sit there and say, look, this is going to be a sharper recession than we've seen in the past. It's probably going to be a lot shorter as well. It's going to be very compressed. You know, but we were surprised that the downside was limited to just 35%. Mm -hmm. At that time, though, you know, towards the end of March, as we started to see a recovery, we were at the point where we were saying, look, valuation is, is reasonable um, and, and we think attractive enough to actually start to slowly add back to equities. So we increased our equity weight in our model portfolio by 5%. So we were underweight at 50%, increased it to 55%, so still underweight. In hindsight, gentlemen, you know, I would have loved to – with everything that we know now in terms of how the market has responded <laughs> – I'd love to take that back and go, no, put it all in. Let's go 20%, you know, overweight equities at this point in time. But there wasn't enough data to support that. And even to today, there isn't enough data really to support being aggressive into these markets. And yet here we are, we've seen a, a really quite unbelievable and unprecedented recovery in equities. Um, and we're starting to see a slow recovery in the U.S. economy, in the Canadian economy, and in, in economies overseas. Uh, but to me, it feels like perhaps we've pulled forward returns that should have come over the next 12 months into 12 weeks. That doesn't mean you want to shun equities because the, the news is getting better. But, you know, we still have a little bit of hesitancy before we really um, uh, want to be aggressive into these equity markets. Philip, we had um, a bunch of money being thrown out to the public in multiple ways. We've had the central banks pretty much around the world pump money into the the economy or trying to prevent a financial crisis. And then we've also had fiscal, we'll call it stimulus, I call it destruction prevention plan. Um, and they're throwing money to everybody from, you know, programs in the United States to keep people from uh, who've lost their jobs. Same here in, the, in Canada. Um, they're giving minimums of, let's call it $2,000 a month here in Canada. Were you expecting that when we saw this pandemic happen? Like, were you expecting all, throw everything you can to prevent a depression? Not quite to the extent that we've seen. Now, on the government side, first, let me applaud what they've done. I think if the government is going to mandate a shutdown, if the government is going to say you can't go to work in these industries, then they have to provide some type of financial support. You can't have it both ways. You're saying, you know, you can't go to work, but you're on your own. You know, good luck. Um, so I, I think they've done the right things. And obviously, if you shut down the economy to the extent that we have, it is costly. On the monetary side, with what the central banks have done, particularly in the United States, you have the Federal Reserve that has increased its balance sheet by $3 trillion. It's, it's a massive amount. Um, it was greater than what we thought. So this is greater than what we saw in QE1 or QE2. Um, it's a pretty significant amount. And it's actually been quite successful in that when the Fed has done quantitative easing in the past, the idea is to, to increase the money supply, but create monetary inflation. And with QE1 and QE2 in 2008 and 2011, it didn't actually work. 
In this case, it's worked. And the money supply has shot up by almost $3 trillion. It's almost dollar for dollar. And that's been kind of the backstop to what we've seen in the equity markets and the fixed income markets. This is why the fixed income markets have rebounded quite strongly and the equity markets have rebounded quite strongly. It is a uh, greater amount. Like they, the Fed has thrown everything at the problem. Um, then it's more than what we would have anticipated. Uh, it appears to have worked um, for the short term anyway. Uh, there will be long-term consequences to this, both fiscal spending as well as monetary stimulus that will be felt for you know down the road, thankfully not in the near term, but down the road, we're going to have to think about these things over the course of the next you know, two to five years, what it means to, to markets and to economies. Well, and with the, the stimulus, especially from the U.S. Fed as the example, we've got all this money coming in the system, Philip. What does that mean for inflation as we move forward into the, into the, uh, the coming years? Yeah, well, we've already seen some inflation. So what we say is money always finds a home. Uh, and so if the Federal Reserve is going to increase the money in circulation by $3 trillion, it's going to get somewhere. Now, you and I aren't about to go and borrow to buy a new boat, new, new car, whatever. Maybe we are, but for the majority, I would say we're not. Um, and so that money has found its way into the asset, uh, asset classes, uh, mm-hmm. equities, uh, bonds, gold. So we're seeing inflation at the asset price level. We do think this will turn into consumer price inflation. Uh, and we've, we've got examples of this in the past uh, where when you run deficits like we're running in the U.S. and Canada, it's, it's about 17% to GDP. In the U.S., it's going to be 15 to 20% of GDP. And then you have the monetary inflation. I do think some of the consequences down the road is going to be higher inflation overall. Um, but I think it's going to come, in particular in the United States, through a devaluation of the U.S. dollar. Right? And Philip, it just it almost stands to reason. You increase the money supply, the value of the dollar is likely to fall. Philip, one thing that we, you and I have been talking about offline a lot throughout this pandemic was um, you and I have been looking at primarily seven major economic indicators to determine if recession is going to be here or not. And some of those indicators are just now irrelevant or, or are not relevant at this time, given the pandemic, when you have a global shutdown. There's always alternative data, and you and your team have looked up some alternative data. What are some of the things you're looking at through this pandemic to give you a sense of what's really happening in the economy when certain, what we'll call, go-to economic indicators are no longer the go-to at this point in time? And you're absolutely right. You know, the chart that we have or the table that we have that looks at uh, preconditions for a recession, we've actually taken that out because it's meaningless at this point. We do have the National Bureau of Economic Research in the United States that has declared a recession in the U.S. And that's, you know, kind of big surprise, right? I mean, everyone knew that was coming. So other things that we have to look at um, that are giving us some positive indicators that, yes, we are starting to see a recovery. One of the things that I paid attention to uh, just recently, again, like uh, pops up on our screen is uh, copper prices. Mm-hmm. So we look at copper, you know, it's, it's known as or called Dr. Copper. Dr. Yeah. Copper has a PhD in the global economy. And this is because copper is an input into so many consumer products, mm-hmm. you know, automobiles, housing, electronics, you name it. What we've seen in copper prices uh, over the last couple of months is, is uh, 
almost a full recovery in the price of copper. It's around 285 a pound now. It's well within its prior high. Um, and this historically has been a good sign that you know, the global economy is starting to pick up. In particular, we're seeing it in China, where mm-hmm. we do have somewhat of a V-shaped recovery in a number of the economic indicators, electricity usage in China, um, we're looking at uh, rail freight in China that has rebounded, auto sales that have rebounded. And so these are some of the other signs. And then what's really interesting is is Google and Apple. Yes. We never thought we would you know, look at Google and Apple for trends, but because we're attached to our mobile phone and we're looking for directions to go wherever, to Uncle Ned's place, mm-hmm. Google and Apple are tracking mobility in the United States. And they're breaking it down by segment, residential, office, retail, and so on. And here, too, slowly we're seeing recoveries in traffic patterns in the United States, which is is just validating that, yeah, you know what? The worst is probably behind us, and we are starting to improve at a slow pace, but it's an improvement nonetheless. Okay, we're going to put a pause here. We have to pay some bills by going to commercial break. When we come back, Philip's going to talk about Where do you put your money now that we've already seen some major recovery in this market? And how do you get a profit and protect along the way? You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. And um, we have our reoccurring guest, Philip Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist with Manulife Investment Management. We were talking, Philip, before the show or before the break about some of the signs you're looking at to see if there's a global recovery. You mentioned copper. You've mentioned activity and, and mobility within search engines like Google and so forth, Apples and so forth. They're all tracking mobility and so forth. The question, I'll call it the trillion-dollar question, Ooh. Andrew. The trillion-dollar question. We've seen a great recovery, and we've seen uh, markets that have come back, and in Canadian dollars, some markets in the U.S. are now positive uh, as a return where do you put your money now? What kind of, we'll call it asset allocation, do you have now knowing what you know? Okay. So we are back to 60-40 in terms of our model portfolio and our asset allocation. So we're back to neutral. So at the end of June, we increase our equity weight by another 5%. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, we just saw a rally of 35-plus of, you know, percent mm-hmm. off the lows of March. Why would you add now? Here's why. Because... As we are going through a recovery, we think the upside in equities over the next 18 months. Now, we, we've extended our outlook, you know, rather than 12 months, we've done 18 months just because 12 months are still a fair bit of uncertainty. 18 months, we do believe that we have a higher confidence that we're going to be solidly in a recovery. We're going to be moving ahead. And um, therefore, our equity outlook, we think that equities can deliver a return of it's, it's a range, but between 5 and 15%, but we think that there's a 75% probability of that. So we're a little bit, we're, I wouldn't say cautiously optimistic. We're optimistic to the sense of an average market return over 18 months. Now, when you compare it to some of the bonds, uh, like long-duration government bonds out there, it looks far greater on the equity side than it does on the bond side because mm-hmm. to what Andrew mentioned, are we going to see inflation? I think we are. Historically, coming out of a recession, the yield curve steepens or long interest rates move up, which is bad for bonds as as rates move up, not the Fed or the Bank of Canada, but the market-driven interest rates go higher, bonds fall in value, 
I think that's what we're going to see over the course of the next 18 months on the government side of things. Um, and so on a relative basis, here's where we sit there saying, you know what? I think it, it's prudent at this point to add another 5% to equities over for the next 18 months because we believe we're going to be solidly in a recovery. So we're back to neutral, really, is, is where we are. Um, and that's how we stand today. 75% probability this is a 5 to 15% return in the market, in the equity markets. What's the 25%? What could go wrong that would push your, and, and we mean realistically, what, what do you see as, as big risks that things could go the other way? The big risk is a, a second or third wave of COVID that will result in another economic shutdown. We're, that's, that's the unknown factor. That's the wild card. You know, the election is coming. I don't, I don't really pay much attention to the election. It never is a good indicator in terms of the direction of the markets. Um, but if we had, um, and I do believe all the medical professionals are, are saying we're going to see a second wave and maybe a third wave. The question is, what is going to be the government response? I'm of the mind that the government is going to keep the economy open uh, and and just manage the healthcare system. We sacrifice the economy. Now we we need to keep the economy opening and just manage the healthcare system. Um, because of what we've been through, I don't think we can afford another economic shutdown. But that is the wild card. That's the 25% probability saying, well, if we have to shut down again, then we're likely to see a resumption of the bear market. And what would be needed in order for things to be better than your forecast? So that's your your better than the 5 to 15% of the equity markets. Is the market looking for a vaccine? I believe the market is looking for a vaccine or other therapeutics that will um, really mitigate um, the mitigate the severity of the virus. Um, I think you can't stop the contagion unless you have a vaccine. I don't think you can stop the contagion, but if you can stop the hospitalizations or ease the hospitalizations, ease the severity of it, uh, then then we are in a, a sharper, you know, then we can see potentially a, a V-shaped recovery or a faster recovery, which means a faster return to prior earnings in attach a, a reasonable multiple to that. And, and that's your 15% plus upside. And we put a 15% probability on that. Okay. Now let's talk about two areas that people are really, the buzz in Calgary is besides oil, the buzz in Calgary is gold and Canadian dollar. What are your thoughts of those two? Oh. <laughs> higher for both. I think that's the quick answer. Uh, the reason why monetary inflation tends to see higher gold prices Right. So as the Fed has increased the money supply, gold has been a beneficiary of that. And I think will continue. Our fair value model for gold suggests that you know, 2250 is a fair price, given um, the money supply and the Canadian dollar higher as well. We do see upward pressure potential for oil prices. The Canadian dollar is still tied to oil. You know, mm -hmm. We have not moved off of that. Uh, and therefore, we think the Canadian dollar are, uh, can go right now. We're saying 77 cents. But that's using a conservative number for oil at $45 a barrel. Higher than that, let's say it gets to 50. Now we're looking at about 79 cents. Do you see oil moving up? I think we do. Uh, or we do see it, I should say. Um, because we've seen the rig count in the United States fall dramatically. We've gone from about 680 rigs to sub 200 rigs. Oil production in the United States is off almost 3 million barrels a day. You have OPEC oil production that's down. Um, and you're starting to see demand improve again, 
So I think we're going to go from a supply glut to a supply deficit, and that should be supportive towards higher prices for oil. You see this deficit happening in 2020, Philip? No, it's probably going to be more of the first half of 2021. There we go. Okay. So we've got a 60% equity portfolio, 40% fixed income. Uh, in the equity side, we've talked and we've read your write-ups. And by the way, anybody who wants to listen to his podcast, definitely do it because it's fantastic information that he puts on his podcast. Um, where do you invest? Because is, is Canada a place to invest or shall we look elsewhere? Well, I say this. Canada is. The TSX itself might not be, meaning you know, I don't want to be an index buyer of the Canadian market um, because the Canadian market is still weighed and skewed towards oil and oil prices and so on. And so even though I think oil prices can go higher, look, $45 isn't anything to cheer about if you're an oil producer, right? You know, $50 still isn't, isn't wildly profitable. Um, so that says the TSX might lag its peers uh, globally. But there are some great opportunities in Canada nonetheless at the individual security level. So I think, you know, look past the index for the opportunities. And then uh, geographically, we favor global right now. Uh, and in particular, we think the U.S. Is, is a good place to be. And that's where uh, we've increased our weight. Um, the U.S. has more technology-disruptive companies than any other country in the world. Um, and if you can get past the fangs, the valuation actually is, is pretty reasonable. Um, and and you know, the market hasn't been driven just by the fangs, yet ironically, the fangs are driving the valuation higher. So if you look at the S&P 500, it looks expensive or it looks fully valued. If you, if you equal weighted, now it looks much cheaper. And guess what? Since the March 23rd low, the equal weighted index has kept pace with the market cap weighted index, meaning... This is a broad-based rally more than just the fangs. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and throw Microsoft in there. We have to let it go here because I could talk to you for hours, my friend. This is uh, great information, good ideas. And again, Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me, and good luck. We have been joined by Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist, Manulife Investment Management. Some of his strategies, some of our strategies, and other top professional money managers from around the world have all talked about a pillar-based investment, looking at different pillars, different ways of investing. And we're going to show you our strategy on Tuesday, July 21st, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Okay, don't go away. After the break, we're going to talk about what do you need to do in order to find the right advisor for you. You've been listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back to More Than Money on 770 CHQR. Andrew Masson filling in for Dave Popovich with me. I'm Faisal Carmelli. Andrew, uh, on this segment, Dave and I normally talk about, you know, what are clients or, you know, listeners of this show talking to us about what's been going on in, on, in their minds and what's, what's the biggest topics out there. And I want to share a bit of a, uh, aha moment that came to me this week, and I wanted your, your feedback. For those of you who don't know, Andrew Masson leads the financial planning and tax strategy for the Popwich Carmelli Advisor Group, and his job is to actually crunch the numbers, um, understand and look at different scenarios, and really dig deep into 
ways that we can find solutions to people's retirement problems. And so Andrew on this show is the best person I can think of that can have this conversation with me because he's really in the, the field. You're not looking at it from you know, the yeah. sky view. You're in there. Well, and, and it's never really a retirement problem. It's only retirement solutions, right? We have to consider different things all the time. Yeah. Um, and I guess if I was to think about it right now, Faisal, and I'm, maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I think that one of the key things that I, I tend to see is there's a lot of people that come to retirement, especially now um, being in Calgary, being in the oil patch, um, and now COVID on top of this, um, where people are getting laid off and they weren't ne not necessarily prepared for yeah. retirement. Yes. Um, and they thought they had five or 10 years before then. But then again, I guess the bigger question is, what is re preparedness? Because if you weren't prepared today, what would make you prepared tomorrow? Great, which kind of goes well with my story I want to mm -hmm. share with you, Andrew. Earlier this week, um, a couple came to us looking for a second opinion. And what they wanted from us was a written financial plan. Now, our, our retirement plans take a very long time in depth. You know, I'll use the number 20 hours of work mm -hmm. per family to really get into the core of what their whole scenario and the options that are available to them. Well, and that's just simply because there's a, a, a significant process that takes place. Correct. And, and what I mean by that is a financial plan by itself is just a piece of paper. Thank you. And that's what this, this, in, this couple wanted. This couple wanted to get a, a piece of paper that says, are we going to be okay mathematically? And what this couple did is they went to another financial institution and asked for the same thing. And they came back with two documents, one from us, one from them. And I did this more of an, to try to understand what's going through their mind. Cause yep. I don't, I don't think the piece of paper really means anything unless you have a strategy and approach around that, not just some number crunching. So let me give you the scenario. They've got a couple million dollars. They need a certain amount of income. It worked out that it was about a 4% rate of return on average. They need for the rest of their lives to reach their goals. Okay. Right. Both us and the other, other advisor at a different institution produced the same type of information. Yep. Right? Looked a little bit different. Aesthetically looked different. Yes. But the same general information. And so I said to them, so then I said, so what are you looking for? You've got a document from two financial institutions. Both of them are saying, here's what you need in order to retire. How are you going to decide who's going to be on your team for the foreseeable future based on those two documents. Like, what were you looking for? And, and when they came back, they said, well, I don't know what I'm looking for from an advisor. And that's really disappointing, but that's not uncommon, Faisal. It's reality, It yes. is very much reality. Um, you know, and, and this, this is an argument about, you know, who can put what shingle up where, and we can have that conversation, but I don't think that that's necessary today. Now, let's let's kind of walk through for mm -hmm. our listeners today, Andrew, of some of the things that people need to understand when they are doing their due diligence on a potential advisor, team, money manager, whatever you want to call it. So first and foremost, I think the individual needs to understand what they're looking for in the following category. Are you looking just for someone to manage your investments or are you looking for somebody who's going to give you advice, 
strategy, handling all the issues that come along your way from a financial perspective? Do you want a team of advisors or do you want a team of money managers? Those are two different roles. Well, and I think the key factor when we talk about that, Faisal, isn't so much the idea of, of an advisor versus a strategy. I think it's really a question of understanding what the differences between them because for the majority of Canadians and I'm going to step out there and say that um, it has always been about money management yeah it has never been about how much do I have how do I spend it what are the tax implications where is it going and what's my strategy moving forward not only this year but years to come so I can get the most enjoyment out of it possible and so the difference really is huge in deciding what's more important to me so if it, so step number one Figure out for yourself, are you looking for somebody just to manage your money mm -hmm. or are you looking for a full advisory type of role? Let's say you're going down the advisory role because a money okay. manager, they're, they're all over the place. Yep. You can, you can buy a mutual fund, exchange-traded fund. You can hire somebody. Like, they're yes. everywhere, right? They're a dime a dozen in my view. Okay. Absolutely. Let's talk about advisor. You find out that you want to you deal with a team or an advisor that can, re, that can help you throughout your retirement. Mm-hmm. What's the next thing that a, a couple or an individual who is looking for this need to do in order to find out if this is the right individual or team for them? Well, I would go as far as to not saying grill us, but I said what you really should do is meet with the people that you've, you've heard of, um, that you might have heard from friends or family or, or from other channels. Have a large discussion about what you're trying to achieve, mm -hmm. what your goals are. And that's a hard question because sometimes you don't know. And so it becomes a little bit more complex. And more importantly, get a feeling of confidence that you're going to be able to deal with that person or people on a regular basis and feel comfortable about what's happening around you. And you're spoken to in language that you understand because our industry is full of acronyms, <laughs> acronyms and yeah. and everything else, and people just nod their heads a lot and go, yeah, yeah. You know, I it's think not really that way. Client advisor chemistry is number one, mm -hmm. because what you just said right there is not only understanding it in plain English, but you have to like this person. You have to have some sort of connection. Can you imagine for the next forty years of your life working with somebody you don't like? Like, that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be taking advice. You're going to ask this person to do a whole bunch of work for you and your family, and you don't like them as an individual. That's number one. And along with that number one piece, right, you have to be comfortable with them because you're going to have to step up as a client and share stuff that you don't necessarily want to share with anybody else on a regular basis. Yes. This happened to me. What happens now? So you build the chemistry. Now you have to understand what that individual advisor or their team, what their process is. Mm -hmm. Understand what they do, how they do it. What if, you, what if things go wrong? How do they fix things? Because things will go wrong. Absolutely. These markets are not going to always go up, and we've experienced mm -hmm. that recently. So what are the things that, how do you deal with the bad times? Do they have a playbook? Correct. And then go into how the individual people who are actually giving you advice. First of all, we have a thesis on our team. We do not believe one person can be all things to all clients. 
We believe a team with specialties that we all have work in a collaborative way so we can all work for that, that family. There are many individual advisors out there and good on them for, for trying this out. But I have a challenging time in my head to figure out how can you do tax, retirement planning, money management, healthcare analysis, estate planning, legal reviews, so forth, and work in the collective good of the individual when you're one person. You can't have that many clients then. No. So then you, that's the next question. How many clients do you have? Absolutely. How can you handle all this? How do I know I'm not going to be treated at the bottom of the list? Mm-hmm. Those types of questions need to be asked. And so for those of you who are doing your due diligence, we only touched on a few things today. There's a long list. Really get into the interviewing process. And you said grill us. Grill whoever you're dealing with right now and grill whoever you're thinking of working with. Because when it comes to retirement, you don't get a second chance at this. Well, you can't have a second chance, but it's never something anybody wants to do. And we've yeah. had people in the Who past to go back have to? gone back to work. Some go back to work because they want to, Faisal. Others go back to work because they have to. That's right. Okay. Great show today, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining uh, joining me because it's way better with, than, with you, you than it is with Dave. So thank you for that. And for those of you who want to understand the process, bulletproofing your retirement, you need to come to our next webinar. That's on Tuesday, July 21st, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. I want to say thank you very much once again, and we'll see you next week. You listen to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodcundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodcundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodcundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodcundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodcundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodcundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund, an investment industry regulatory organization of Canada.